I'm going to teach this morning out of Romans 8. Romans is such a great and dense book. It's hard to find the on-ramp sometimes when you have a text because Paul makes these long clauses and he connects them to the next one, the next one, the next one. And you really, I heard John Piper one time said he was so thankful for his eighth grade teacher who taught him to diagram sentences. If he didn't figure out how to read a sentence the way Paul wrote it, because you, sometimes you need to diagram those sentences to see how they work. But he makes these long, complex arguments. He references back, and they're so glorious. So I'm going to read a big section, but we're really going to focus on a small section. But I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll reference it later. So you won't, you'll see the text now, but you won't necessarily... I'm going to make, make David hunt back for each one I reference later. Uh, so let's start in Romans 7, verse 13. We'll read this, then we'll talk about it some more. Now, and, and just to give you some background, he's been talking about the law. You know, so Romans makes this introductory argument of saying that we are all sinners and that we've all failed to live by the law. And in that sense, the law is to us death because we can't live by the law. We can't live sinlessly. The law condemns us. Uh, when there is a law, the previous paragraph there, he talks about when a, when a law comes to be, then I start sinning. If I didn't know the law, then I, I wouldn't. But it, we're so prone to sin that once it's set out there, we take it. So verse 13, let's start. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do this very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, which that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I'm going to stop there for a second. We'll continue in 8. Throughout church history, and probably more so now, a lot of people look at chapter 7 and they say, is Paul talking about himself now or before he was saved? Is Paul referencing the unregenerate Paul, did not know Christ, or is he talking about himself in the present? I'm falling on the side of he's talking about himself in the present, but some people like to take this chapter and say, Paul's referencing his old self. I don't see uh, that that's the case, and I, you look throughout other scripture, you look throughout all of Romans, and I think well, it only makes sense if he's talking about himself now and the challenge that we all face, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Back to chapter 8, verse 1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. That's a lot. We're going to focus on that last paragraph in the middle of the paragraph. But I wanted to take you from where he started. And he's talking about the law condemns us. He's made this argument in 7 through 8. Remember that Paul didn't write chapter 7 and stop and say, now I'm going to get to chapter 8. No, this was one long letter. Centuries and centuries later, uninspired, the numbers were put in, the chapter divisions. They put them in where they tried to make sense. It's a long, continuous thought. But he, he's, he's laid out all this about the law and the flesh and the weakness of the flesh and the death of the flesh. And then he says, here's the problem. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Verse 15. The spirit of bondage is what uh, some versions say. And it's a very great statement. Why did Paul make it? Why was his reason for doing this? There's something about the Romans, the Roman Christians, the Christians in Rome, they need to hear this, and we need to hear it too. That's why it was there. All, all Christians need to hear this. You have not received the spirit of bondage, of slavery, again, to fear. He's anxious to save them from something. The times that I've come up here to teach over the last few months, several times I've referenced that I have a book I've really enjoyed, and some of this is coming from that book again. It's about spiritual depression or despondency. You've got to keep the spiritual attached to it, because it's talking about in the Christian, there are times we are challenged. We, we find life is hard, and we may find that we have a spirit of discouragement. And so I think Paul is saying, 
Because of this argument I've made, you need to recognize where you are in this world, in this universe, in this life, and that your body, this sinful flesh, is destructive and it will fail, and it is a source of sin. It is always with you, but don't be discouraged. That's what he's saying. Don't be discouraged. So what is the cause? We're living the Christian life. We're dealing with sin. Paul's been dealing with it throughout these chapters. These are Christians. They've been converted. Paul is writing to the church. They know what it means to be converted. They know that they don't live by the law to be saved. Right? They know better than that. That argument doesn't have to be made here. They know that they are saved by grace. These are Christians. They're not trying to work out their salvation through works. Yet, they're struggling, and somehow they have slipped back into bondage, just as if they were still bound by this dead flesh. And part of it is, is they live in a world, and we live in a world that's antagonistic towards Christianity. It's antagonistic towards righteous living. It's antagonistic towards faith, belief. And we face this world that is antagonistic towards us. We face the devil that is out to tempt us and destroy us, and we recognize in ourselves, as Paul has said in in chapter 7, that we find certain things within our own nature that trip us up. There is sin without, there is sin within. That's the essence of the problem. And if we fail to realize it, we'll fall into this despondency, this spirit of slavery, this spirit of bondage, and it will trouble our faith. Several weeks ago, I talked about having little faith. We talked about the storm came up, and the disciples, they knew they had faith, but it was so small, they didn't apply it. They didn't remember it. And if you think of Peter, what it happened, he had a little event that happened on the ocean as well, right? He stepped out in faith, he walked on the water, but then what did he do? He let go of faith. He didn't maintain it. So we have, faith is something that we have to actively apply It is something we have to persist in. And in this section, I think, of Romans, we see that we have to appropriate it. We have to remember what it is or it won't help us. We can know the truth. We can know the scripture. But if we don't apply it to our lives, it doesn't help us in our battle against sin. So a spirit of bondage. So their spirit of bondage was they become servants again to the flesh. They do whatever it wants. These are people who are saved. They have the Spirit of God in them. They are adopted. That's going to be our main focus, those three things here. But they live as if they are servants. And it comes from this tendency we have and that they had to turn the Christian life into a new law. Again, they knew what the law was. They knew they weren't saved by the law. Yet, having been saved by grace, and we do the same thing, we've been delivered, yet we turn it into a new law. There are things that back then they had the Judaizers following Paul around, right? So that was not, any, that was not helpful. And that a lot of them were coming out of Jewish religion or works-based religions. They wanted to turn things into law. But we do the same thing. We've been re- redeemed. We understand justification when we think about it. But we look at the Christian life, maybe subconsciously, and we turn it into a new law. And that puts us back in a spirit a bondage. We think that it's a great task. That's what the Romans were thinking. That the Christian life is this great task that we must accomplish. That holiness is this great task that we're 
to apply ourselves, and we'll get there. It's a common form of religion. Almost every cult, almost every Christian religion that's been turned into works religion is based off of that, that we have to attain uh, righteousness on our own by what we do, a great task that we step-by-step become holier by what we do, and we have to apply it. That is our great task. That is very much at the heart of Catholicism. There is grace in Catholicism. They understand, but it's not, you know, as the Reformers said, it's not alone. They also want to earn and apply and, and work at the task. And the thing is, these things are balanced. We are to strive for holiness and righteousness, but we don't do it on our own. And Paul is saying right here, if that's what you're doing, if you're putting on the flesh again to be bound by a law, you're back in the spirit of bondage. It can be quite common among evangelical Christians. We impose on ourselves a new law. We don't call it a new law because if we realize that, we'd be, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I, I know better than that. But we still do it. We see it throughout the New Testament epistles. Paul was having to fight this. He was helping these Christians to fight this tendency in their lives. If you look at Colossians 2, 16 through 22, this is another kind of lengthy passage, but Paul directly addresses this. Let me find it. That's 2, 16 through 22, starting verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, asceticism, it's not a word we use that much, but that is like monkery, putting off things. If you're in the world and you think, oh, these things in the world, they just keep tempting me. I keep falling because I, I like stuff or I want to I make this the focus of my life or I watch too much TV or whatever it is. The asceticism would say, well, just get rid of those things in your life. Just live a life. You get rid of all those things, you won't be tempted by them. So that's what, that's what monks do. That's, they do it in many religions, but that's what Christian monks did. I always liked the word monkery. The reformers like to say monkery. They didn't like monks. They tore down the monasteries. They think, if I can get rid of everything else, people, how many times do the sin in our lives, we can just say, well, it's not because of this desire, it's because of that person. Well, just don't have other people around you. I'll take care of that, right? Well, a Christian can't live that way. called to be in fellowship. But that's what we do. And that's an asceticism. That's, it's a word from Greek, but it's to say to get rid of everything. So don't listen to music. Don't, listen to, don't look at art. Don't look at the things you love. You like quilting? Well, you might like it too much, so quit quilt, quilting. You, know? you like sports? Too much sports? No sports. I won't be tempted by any of those things. That's asceticism. And it is not the gospel. The gospel... In, calls us to enjoy the good things God has given us. Not in a sinful way, but God created a good world, and he put us in it, and he's going to recreate this new heaven and earth, and those things will be perfect, and we will be perfect, and we won't bring sin into the problem. It's not the things often that are the problem. It's always us, something within us. So I think I stopped and forgot where I was, which is bad when you've got a really long passage of Scripture. 16 through 22, verse 20. Well, I said asceticism. Let's stop there. The worship of angels, this is verse 18, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here in Colossae, you had people coming in there and saying, don't eat this, don't touch that, and this is how you got to live for God. And some of them were probably getting sick by the stuff they weren't eating. Right? How many religious diets have you heard of? There are many. Now, you could be religious about a diet, but within the church, diets spread like wildfire sometimes. Or you know that one person that it works for them, and I'm not going to be judgmental, and again, I'm not setting up a law, but they may say, well, I have found this to be successful, and they live it like it's a law, a religion, and they make you feel guilty about it. But maybe it's not them that feels guilty about it. Maybe it's just us. That's kind of what's saying here, because he says they've made a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They're hurting themselves. You see people that beat themselves with whips, something like that too. Don't submit to a new law and be bound by it again. So that's what's happening in the early church. This tendency, it's still with us, but here's the principle back in Romans. The spirit of bondage, it always brings with it a spirit of fear. So it finishes. God has not given us a spirit of bondage, yet we have received a spirit of bondage again to fear. That's what has happened here. How does it produce a spirit of fear? When you have a spirit of bondage, you have a wrong fear of God. There is a right fear of God, right? And we neglect and ignore that at our peril. But there's a wrong fear of God. That is a, a craven fear and a um, consuming fear that torments you. This is the wrong fear of God. That God is a taskmaster. That we regard Him as someone who's constantly watching to see our faults, the blemishes, and the punishments. Now, God sees all things. He knows our hearts, but he watches us in love. But if you have this fear of God in that way, then you think, well, God is just out to catch me and punish me, or that he's very distant and doesn't care. But it's not just a fear of God. It's a fear of the greatness of what we've been called to do. If you have a task, and if you take that and say, my task is to live a holy and righteous life, which we are called to do that, and we look at it and we say, how can I? It's too big of a task for me. I cannot meet the task. And that causes fear. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it's just because too many things have piled up and you think, okay, my task to make it through Friday, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Too much stuff to do. But this is, this is bigger than that. This is the task that says to live a, a Christ-like life in this world, to not sin, honor God in all that I do, to love my neighbor as myself, all of these things I'm called to do. It's too big for me. I can't do it. I'm afraid I'm going to fail. And it can become all-consuming. That we have no business being in the Christian life. And we become, we've become dreadful of it. There's no joy in it. It's a giant task. We tend to be afraid in the wrong way of the power of the devil. It's another type of fear. There's a right fear of the devil. Uh, scripture points out, particularly Jude, 2 Peter, think of Think of Cain when God said, sin lies crouching at your door. 
The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a right fear of the devil, but there's also wrong fear. One, there's to totally not fear the devil at all. There's this fearlessness. There's cavalier about the devil. We make jokes about the devil. Um, We're ignorant when we do that. The devil is powerful. But on the other hand, there's people who cower in fear all the time of the devil. They're always aware of his power. They see him behind every, in every shadow. These are spiritually minded people. They see the, the devil with power against them and they're afraid. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. I always think of this in relation to this concept. If you've ever read the screw tape letters, it's in the introduction. Great book. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And there's another type of fear. And this again, there's a balance here. They're so afraid of the sin that is within. And if we, are, if we do not recognize the sinfulness and the blackness of our own heart, then we're ignorant of Scripture, and it will affect our faith. But this is different than having a spirit of fear. Knowing this and having a spirit of fear, those are different things. Um, some people are so aware, hyper-aware of that, that all they do is condemn themselves all the time, denounce themselves. They only focus on the darkness and the blackness of their heart. Now, it's not really much of a common problem today. It probably was. There have been times in church where the church was so focused on that, it was a dour place, and we carry that reputation sometimes. Often we're on, far on the other end of the spectrum. We don't think too much about the topic of indwelling sin. An indwelling sin is a theological term, sort of. It's used, it was used more by Puritans. Uh, John Owen, I'm going to quote him several times, uh, used it, one of his famous treatise. Indwelling sin is basically what Paul said. We just read it. That's why I read you a big section there. Indwelling sin is that this flesh, sin continues to dwell within this flesh all throughout the Christian life. We, like Paul, discover how powerful the law of sin is when we try to fight against it, right? You may say, well, I'm not sure that sin dwells in my flesh anymore. Like, Okay, get ready. You're about to find out that it does. As soon as you think that, Boy, that's when it's dug in well. Paul discovers how powerful this sin is, he says, when he tries to fight against it. He tries not to do it, and there he discovers, right there with him, is this sin. Think of a war. Think of wars. There's a war going on in Europe right now. There's, we can think of many wars throughout history. And and oftentimes, wars are just, they're fought, particularly uh, if you think of the Ukraine and Russia conflict right now. What is being done right now is very small advances and retreats. I mean, these would not go a block, more than a few blocks in Midland between our main roads. They're not moving that much anymore, but it's very deadly because they're defending very small sections of ground. They did a lot to gain it. They're dug in, and they fight over just a little piece of ground, but that's what sin does in our life. It gains a little piece of ground, and it will fight and fight for that piece of ground because if you give it up, you've got to get it again. So just hold it and wait. So we often think, okay, I have victory over that sin. I fought that battle. All is well. You, sh- you have to always be on the defense. The infiltrators are always there. They're ready to come back and say, I got another inch of ground, and I'm going to hold on to this, and I'm going to take over, and I'm going to ruin your life. It may take 20, 40 years. It's a battlefield. John Owen says that those that do not find its power, talking about indwelling sin, 
are under its dominion. He's saying, if you don't see the power of sin in your life, that's because it controls you. It doesn't want you to know. He goes, this dangerous companion is always resident in the soul. It's a living coal. The Puritans have great illustrations. The living coal that must not be disregarded or it may consume a person. How many of you have a wood fireplace at home? We do. And you burn it, and then you think, okay, I'm going to clean up the ash. What's underneath there sometimes? It's a hot coal. You go throw that out in a, outside, and before you know it, backyard's on fire. There's a, the sin is that living coal. You don't see it, but it's hot. It's ready to spark, send out sparks. Hebrews 12.1 says, The sin which so easily besets us. John Owen looked at this statement, and he expanded on it. I love the way, I like what he said here. He said, we have to understand that sin can be applied to anything in our life. It's always there. Is it about our understanding or our mind to, to apply something? Well, there is sin. Ignorance, darkness, vanity, folly, madness. It'll take you there. Are you trying to engage with something, trying to do something? Well, sin is right there to make sure you have a spiritual deadness, that you have stubbornness, that you're obstinate. I don't like reading that. It's in our heart, in our affections, in our feelings. When we, we feel like we're doing, when we're doing something from our heart, from our affections, and then suddenly we find out that there's an inclination to worldliness, to the present, to sensuality, to every source of sin. Owen says, hence it is easy for sin to insulate itself into all that we do and to hinder all that is good and to further all sin and wickedness. And that sounds rather hopeless. But we must remember that at the moment of our salvation and our regeneration, we are freed from the power, the dominion of sin, but not from the presence of sin. It's still in our heart. It's still in our life. We are no longer under its condemnation. Christ, our sin nailed to the cross. It's no longer our master. Remember Christ is talking to the priest and he says, you guys serve your father, the devil. That's us before we know Christ. We're just like that. But when we know Christ, that's not the case anymore. But we're never free from all sin in this life. If you think that, go read 1 John. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Scarcely do I need to prove this, beloved, for all of you, I am sure, who know anything about the experience of a living child of God, have found that in your best and happiest moments, sin still dwells in you. That when you would serve your God the best, sin frequently works in you the most furiously. It's always there. But there is good news. The gospel communicates to us life and power and grace to dethrone sin in our lives. And we have the Spirit of God. That's what this passage just said. Within us to enable us to have victory over sin. To put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8.13. David, see if you can pull that back up. Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have to put to death sin every day while we are alive. And we do this by the Spirit. John Owen speaks of the Spirit working on our understandings, our will, our consciousness, our affections, and our own nature. He works in us and with us, not against us, and not without us. That's important, because a lot of 
Christians think, well, the Spirit will take care of that. The Spirit is working in us. John Piper says on this passage, by the Spirit does not mean that the Spirit is a tool or a weapon that we wield. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is God. The Spirit of Christ is a person, not a tool. You don't pick up the Spirit and put it back down. You don't use the Spirit when you need it. The Spirit is, is a person, and it's actually the opposite. We are in the Spirit's hands, not the Spirit in our hands. So killing sin by the Spirit means having a mindset through which the Holy Spirit works to free us from the power of sin. The Spirit's working in us to free us from the power of sin, and that's how we have victory over sin, by the Spirit. We don't just say, well, let's, Spirit, take care of that. We pray, and, and we do pray that, but the Spirit goes about that within us. The mindset of faith in the promises of God. So, again, this fear that results from the spirit of bondage in, the, in a Christian is ultimately a fear of ourselves, fear of failure. You think, I've come into this life, but how can I live it? And I'm full of fears. And the apostle says, you have not received a spirit of bondage. You've not received a spirit of bondage again to fear. Why be in bondage? Why fear? As Paul's saying. You were there. You were brought out of it by Christ. Why go back? So why go back? We don't have to go back. And here comes, we talked about indwelling sin. Well, next, what's the next glorious truth for us? We just talked about the spirit. We have an indwelling spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And it works out in two ways. We follow the task of defeating sin through the Spirit and the flesh by following the Lord Jesus Christ when we walk through this world. That He walked through, He defeated sin in the flesh through the power of the Spirit. That's what Scripture says. We've been born again, we've been fashioned by God according to the image of Christ. And we begin to ask, how do we do it? The power of the Holy Spirit is in us. Paul said that in verse 13. That if you live by the flesh, you die. But if you live in the Spirit, you will mortify the the deeds of the body and you'll live. We have to realize that we're not living by ourselves. If I live by myself, and and I think of all the things that I know are true about myself from experience and also that Scripture teaches, I'll fall into bondage and fear. But I'm not living by myself. It's as if Paul is telling the Romans, you've been thinking of this task that's all, that you're all alone in this, by yourself, trying to live as a Christian. You know you're forgiven, but you think that you're on your own now. And he says, it's not surprising that you're in bondage and fear, if you think that. Because uh, it's hopeless if you, if you try to live that way. But that's not the, our position. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Um, the law could not save us because it was weak, In the flesh. There's nothing inherently wrong in the the law. The law is not flesh, but we never, our flesh is so weak, we couldn't fulfill it. And as he's talked about this in in the verses we read from 8 at the beginning, um, if we don't have the Spirit of Christ in us, we're not a Christian. But we do. God is working in us. Philippians 2, verse 13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Recognize that God is in us. The God of this Bible, the God of 
creation, the God of the deliverance, split the Red Sea, cleared Canaan, brought down fire, raised the dead. God is with us. That spirit is in us. I think that's a source of fear and trembling, to recognize the power that is in us. Because it shouldn't be a fear of trembling that says, God is in me. Oh, wow, I'm really scared of that God. No, that's not the fear and trembling. It's the fear and trembling that say that this task is so great and mighty that I could never do it. But the awesome God is doing it. And what does he do it? Both to will and to do his good pleasure. So we're not to be passive. He is empowering us. When we're wrestling with sin, we've got to recognize Christ is empowering us. God is empowering us through the Spirit. We exert ourselves, and we wouldn't do that unless he was there to guide us in doing that. He works in us. He'll work it out. The task is not impossible. God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Galatians 4, 6 says, the Spirit of his own Son. Do you realize that? The Spirit of his own Son? So this is where the topic now switches to one of a relationship. He said this, go back to 8.13. For you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Are sons of God. Sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of Adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness, witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So adoption. So this is the third thing here. We'll finish this one out. We have received the spirit of adoption. Why would we be fearful and why would we seek bondage? Why would we, why would we seek to become, when I say bondage, Think of slavery. Now, think of, Paul is talking about Romans, slavery, which is a little bit different than what we as Americans historically think of slavery. It's a lot different, but still slavery. You're still bound. You still don't have freedom. You still are at the will of of the slaveholder, and you still, this term bondage. It's like you're in chains. And it produces fear, not a godly fear. But we are adopted by the king of kings. We're not held by his slave. We're children of the king. So how does this help us in life? Well, it ought to help us in a lot of ways. One is that we are called to live holy lives. We talked about earlier, we we tend to take that and turn it into a law. But we live holy lives because why? Because that's our nature now. That's the family motto. Righteousness and holiness and goodness. Christ is our brother. You ever think about that? We say Father, and Christ told us to pray how? Our Father. We say Father. We think of this relationship of God as our Father, and He is our Father. But what does that also mean? If God is our Father and Christ is God's Son, Christ is our brother. This is a really hard concept to understand. I don't know why. And I say that to myself. Why, don't, why is this trip you up. Christ is our brother. We're that close relationship. In fact, closer because every relationship we have person to person is affected by the sin of two people. 
But our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ, the relationship with the Spirit is only affected by the sin of one person, and that's me, you, and your relationship with God. There is no sin in our brother, Christ. There is no sin in our indwelling the Holy Spirit that indwells us. There's no sin in the Father. He has done this because he loved us, and he's enabled us, it says, by that Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. We wouldn't say it, except that the Spirit enables us to do it. If he is our judge and he condemns us and he's not our Father, we fear him. But if he's Father, we take his discipline. Right? We learn that we do wrong and God disciplines us as a loving Father, not as a distant judge. So we pray to our Father, our Father, we recognize that the everlasting God has become our Father. Before that, we were children of the devil, as it were. But he's always caring for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He loves us with the same love he loves Christ. And the power, if you, if you look in the Gospels and you, you follow what Jesus did, and he did miracles, and he spoke truth, and he bore the cross... And he was raised again. And how did all those things happen, Scripture says? By the power of the Spirit. Well, what do we have? The Spirit. The same power. We sing, the choir sings a song. You've heard this song on the radio if you listen to Christian radio. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is in us. That's true. That's our relationship. When we realize that, it should transform everything. Our desire should not be to just keep the law, but to please our Father. To look like our brother, Christ. To look like Christ. To be Christ-like. To be Christian. And that takes away a spirit of bondage. It's not a matter of rules or regulations, but a desire to show him our gratitude and to show others what he's like. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. Paul is a logician. He makes a logical argument, and he says, okay, if you are, if Christ is your brother, if God is your father, Christ is the the heir to God the Father, and you are joint heirs through the Spirit. He's the firstborn of many brethren, Scripture says. John 17, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as you have loved me. He says this in the presence of his disciples. He says, the Father has loved them, that's you, that's us, like you love me, Father. Just the same. That should be empowering. That should give us hope. That should not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of hope. He loves us as he loves Christ, his only begotten son. This is the Christian life, that we belong to God and we must glorify him. And the spirit in us enables us to do it. Transforms our outlook. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? It dwells within us. This should help us overcome sin. We've heard this since we were children if we were in church. If you're tempted to sin... Recognize that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that you're defiling this empty temple and the Holy Spirit's going to come back and say, ooh, I don't want to, I can't go in there. It's been defiled. The Holy Spirit is there with you. Christ 
is with us. Christ's Spirit is with us at all times. Oftentimes you hear people pray in a defeated way. Pray for help with this. Pray for assistance. This challenge in my life, this sin, this temptation. We shouldn't pray in a defeated way because what? The Spirit is with us. What a powerful thing to remember. Apply that in your prayer. That is our destiny as we're joint heirs with Christ. So what is Christ's destiny? You can look at the book. He will reign over the universe. He does now, but in the end times, it will be manifest to all. Well, if that is his destiny and we are joint heirs, that is part of our destiny too. We often feel like we're the black sheep of God's family, right? Individually. I do. We, we recognize what's in us. We recognize our weaknesses and we think, well, I'm just... Or the church. The church is full of black sheep, right? If you think you're the one white sheep, then you might ask around. We're all Cousin Eddie in some sense. But God is our shepherd. Christ is our shepherd. He's our brother. God is our father. We're all part of the family. All these black sheep, all these, these oddities, all these peculiar people. And we're certain of our destiny. J.I. Packer said, Consistently living out our filial relationship, that is our relationship, father as a son, with God, which is what the gospel brings us into. It's not a matter of a child of God being true to type, true to his father, to his savior, and to himself. It is expressing that we're adopted in one's life. That's what God has expressed in us, his adoption of us. And our expression in the back is to be a good son, distinct from those who are outside. We are part of the royal family. It's not keeping a standard. It's getting ready to be what we are. It's getting ready for the place we are going. That's what living the Christian life is. That's the task. And we're empowered. We're not uh, in bondage in it. This should transform all our relationships. Our relationship to God. Our relationship with the world. And here's what we don't like. If we were children of the world as it were, the flesh, and now we're children of God, what is the relationship with the world like now? The world doesn't want to have anything to do with us. The world was quite happy for us to be lost because the world and all its systems and everyone in it that doesn't know Christ is lost, and we were part of that family. Well, now we're not. So we should expect that the world is not going to treat us well. And that's okay because whose family are we in now? We're in God's family. He's adopted us. But look at how they treated God. Christ said, are you ready to bear this cup? If you follow me, look at the cup that I bear. If they do this to the master, what will they do to the servants? Our relationship to the future is changed by our adoption and our recognizing it. We don't know what we shall be, but we know that when Christ shall appear, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. We have great prospects as children God, and we have a glorious inheritance. And our relationships to ourselves. 1 John 3 says, Every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. What we do with our minds, our desires, our thoughts, our mouths, our tongues, our eyes, our hands, our friends, our enemies, our hurts, our disappointments, those are all things that are transformed that we must purify because we are pure. Pure people are able to purify themselves through the power of the Spirit. And our relationship to the church, we're the family of God. Every person in here, if you know Christ, 
we're all in the same family. We say that, hey, brother, hey, sister. We don't say that enough. I like we say it in this church. Some churches have gotten away from it. They think it's hokey. I think that's bad. I think it's good. We should be kind of weird because we're different. We're not like the world. We shouldn't seek to be imitators of the world. We should be peculiar and love one another. And we should have a good attitude toward our brother and sisters, recognizing that we all carry this sin around with us. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt each other from time to time. But if we're bound by the bitterness of that, you've bound yourself in a spirit of bondage again, and fear will come, and anger. Look inside yourself. John 3, uh, to continue where I was reading there. Um, Now that we are sons of God, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We'll see him as he is. We have hope. I'm going to finish with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'll tell you, I was reading this book. And um, he says, There's nothing that is so calculated to promote holiness as the realization that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, that our destiny is certain and secure, that nothing can prevent it, realizing that we purify ourselves even as he is pure. That's the way to live the Christian life. Do not turn it into a law, but realize that you have received the Holy Spirit. Then work it out. Your Father is watching over you. He is looking after you. He is jealous concerning you because you belong to Him. You belong to Christ. You are His brother. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in your very body, and you are destined to glory. Well, then what of it? As you contemplate this, Lloyd-Jones quotes this hymn. It's a hymn that we never sing, but we should. Maybe we'll start. It's called, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Anybody heard this hymn? Jesus, I, my cross have taken. One. That's good. Two or three. The fourth or fifth, it's got like six, seven verses. Um, says, take my soul, thy full salvation. So it's saying, okay, soul, take your full salvation. Recognize it. Rise or sin and fear and care. Just like Paul is saying, rise over that fear. Rise over that sin. Rise over those cares. There is joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee, what a father's smile is thine, what a savior died to win thee. Child of heaven, shouldst thou repine? Repine, fret is what that means. Think that every station you're in, every situation, there's something God is at work because the spirit is in you. For you to do, for you to bear through that spirit, because the spirit dwells within you. The Father's smile is on you. The Savior died to win you. You, We we shouldn't worry about how we feel. The truth is more glorious than what we feel. So think of the truth. That's what Paul is doing. He says, pray. Yeah, pray. Fellowship, do all those things. But he's saying, think. Think about the fact that you're saved. The Spirit is in you. And you won't have to live in bondage. Let's pray. We'll go. Father God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making yourself known to us, our need of a Savior known to us, and making Christ known to us that we can trust him in faith, Lord. Help us to, to apply that faith in our lives to remember your glorious salvation, your plan, your hope for us, that we are appointed heirs, that we are brethren with Christ And help that to empower us, recognizing that your spirit is in us, that there's nothing we should fear. Lord, help us to to live lives of, of righteousness, using what we know from your word to examine our lives, to examine our hearts, to look for 
the sin, um, to look in the dark places where we, we know it's, it's hanging out. And Lord, in the power of your Spirit, help us to defeat that. Be with us now as we go. Help us to worship you in our song and in the preaching and in all that we do the rest of this day. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.